I noticed in the bulletin that we call this the second lesson. Actually, it's our first lesson. It comes from the Old Testament, from the book of 1 Kings. I'm reading from chapter 19 of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all of the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he went for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay down and slept under, under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink. And he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights under Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They have thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, saying, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy stead. Amen. A member of our congregation, Miss Jean Crawford, will be leaving this week to go to Korea. And I want to request the members of our congregation to be especially prayerful for her as she assumes the responsibility of being a missionary for Christ in Korea. Next Wednesday evening at prayer meeting, one of our missionaries from Korea, Joseph Hopper, will be speaking to us. 
And then next Sunday morning, the Reverend R.K. Robinson, uh, another of our missionaries from Korea, will be speaking. Now then, today I want us to look at some lessons from the life of one of the great and towering figures in the Bible, the prophet whose name is Elijah. The word Elijah means Jehovah is my God. We do not know who his father and mother were. He is called Elijah the Tishbite, but we're none the wiser for that because we do not know where the village of Tishbe uh, was. All we know is that God's answer to Baal worship came in the form of Elijah the prophet. You see, the kingdom had been created after the great reign of David and Solomon. There had been a united kingdom, but then a brash young man by the name of Rehoboam, whose strange name means enlarger of my kingdom, enlarged it from 12 tribes to 10 and 2 right quick. He broke it up. Uh, he uh, made many foolish moves. He is the one who put the shields of brass where shields of gold once stood uh, in the temple of God because of compromises that he had made. Well, after Rehoboam and after other kings had come, there came a man on the throne finally by the name of Ahab. Ahab was in the, this northern kingdom, and he entered into an evil alliance with a woman whose name is synonymous for evil, whose name was Jezebel, who introduced a horrible form of wicked worship uh, to the people of God. And this spineless king Ahab, who reigned for about 22 years, uh, caused much evil. Now, at times of spiritual declension, God would sometimes send incredible and miraculous figures who came on the scene. And so it happens that there bursts upon the scene this man Elijah. He comes a wild, strange figure out of the desert country. He is a figure who attracts much attention in the New Testament. He is mentioned more than any other prophet in the New Testament. Twenty-seven times the name of Elijah appears. It's not for nothing that when, he, when John the Baptist began his ministry that they came to him and asked him if he were Elijah. It's not for nothing that when Jesus' dis disciples were asked by our Lord himself, whom do the sons of men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say that you remind them of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And others said they remind, that you remind them of Elijah, the great prophet of God, who demanded that the people of God quit their compromising ways and yield themselves in total allegiance and absolute commitment to the Lord God. There was something in the fervor and in the power of Christ that made these people think of Elijah. It's not for nothing that when he was nailed on the cross of Calvary and when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that someone sitting there at the cross said, what is he saying? And someone else said, why don't you know he's calling for Elijah? It's not for nothing that when Paul is writing his masterful epistle to the Romans in which he sets forth the great doctrines of justification by faith that he begins to point back to miracles which Elijah wrought. And so you're going to see James, that pragmatic man in his letter, 
speak of Elijah as a man of like passions, such as we are. Now then Elijah came out of the deserts and confronted Ahab, the spineless king who had allowed compromising evil things to be incorporated into worship by the people of God. And Elijah told him that there would be no rain, that there would be no dew indeed, until he should give the word. Now when you stop to think that these oriental despots had the powers of life and death in their hands, you know that Elijah is no faltering, callow, scary fellow, but he is a man of great courage. And so he faced Ahab and told him what was going to happen. And so the ground became like iron, and the heavens turned to brass, and the fields were burnt, and the drought began to spread. Only a week or so ago, I walked with a dear man of God, a professor for many years of Greek in a college up in New York. We were talking about the weather conditions and the drought and the fires forest fires out in California, and he said to me, I sometimes wonder if God is speaking to us again in, in terms of judgment. Well, Elijah had prayed to God that it not rain, hoping that this judgment would cause the people of God to forsake their evil sins. But it didn't work. It didn't work. And so then Elijah prayed to God for a miracle. And you know how in that grand encounter at Mount Carmel, where God has called all of the prophets of Baal to meet him, all 450 of them, and where sacrifices are placed upon an altar, and he says, you call upon Baal, and I will call upon Jehovah, and the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And the prophets of Baal began early in the morning. And they called upon Baal to answer with fire, but Baal did not hear them. And as the hours began to wear away, they, in a frenzy of screaming, with their brass ornaments flying, gnashed themselves with lancelets and let blood flow. And they screamed all the more for Baal to hear them. Oh, Baal, hear us. And Elijah with an incredibly fine sense of irony, begins to scream at them and taunt them. And he said, maybe your God is deaf. Maybe he needs a hearing aid. Call a little louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Call louder still. And Elijah stands on the sidelines and taunts them. And then when the shadows of the evening lengthen, and the Baal prophets have spent themselves emotionally and give up. Elijah comes forward and he takes his 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he rebuilds the altar. And if things have gone wrong in your life, maybe you better stop and think about the place of the altar in prayer. Have you really sought God in earnest prayer? Have you been willing to offer yourself as a living sacrifice upon that altar to him? Well, Elijah rebuilds the altar. And you know how he calls for the barrels of water to come and be poured upon 
the sacrifice until it is sodden with water. And how water fills the trenches around it. And then he calls upon God. And there comes a tremendous burst of lightning and fire that consumes the sacrifice and licks up the water that is in all of the trenches. And then because the stern justice of that day and time demanded it, Elijah commands that these evil powers be destroyed. And a great victory occurs at Carmel. And a tremendous rainstorm comes later, demonstrating the answer of God here. But does it work? No, it really doesn't. They don't really turn back to God. And when Ahab tells Jezebel what happened at Mount Carmel, she sends word to Elijah. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. And more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. It is right after our greatest spiritual victories that we must watch for the enemy of our souls, Satan, to lead us in despair. I remember reading a thing by General Douglas MacArthur, the brilliant military genius, in which he talked about what it took to have a successful army, how important morale was, had you, how you had to have a cause worth dying for, how you had to have equipment and training, how you had to keep your lines of supply guarded. But he spent more time on one thing, have a knowledge of your enemy. And he demonstrated from all the way back from Joshua in the Bible, clear on to the encounters with Rommel in the deserts of North Africa, how a knowledge of the enemy would be one way by which a victory could be won. And Paul tells us, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, not to be ignorant of the devices of Satan, our adversary. And one of our adversary's devices is that of discouragement and despair. There was a grand old Negro preacher, a black man down in Charleston, who used to have a magnificent sermon in which he spoke of the devil's workshop and how the devil had once had a great sale of all of his tools, with the exception of one strange implement that had a sign on it, not for sale. And so when people asked him, why is this one not for sale? Satan said, I can do without everything else. You can have lust and envy and greed and lying and all of the other things, but not this one thing. And they said, well, what on earth is it? And he said, it's discouragement. It's despair. You see, that's the vice of the virtuous. Those of us who are not going to commit adultery and those of us who are not going to get drunk and those of us who are going to try to be truthful and honest, those of us who are not going to steal are apt to give in to despair. And Elijah is going to have that happen to him. After that great miracle at Mount Carmel, word comes to him of what Jezebel has said and he forgets all of the victory and he runs. And he runs fast. As we used to say in Texas, he ran so fast you could play checkers on his coattail. 
he moved out. And he went for 80 miles. And he stopped long enough to get his breath, and then he went some more. He was running as fast as he could go to get away from the wrath of Jezebel and forgetting that the God who had done so many marbles would still meet his needs. And he goes to a juniper tree which has become a symbol for despondency and despair. And he falls down beneath that juniper tree and he cries out to God to let him die. Take away my life for I am not better than my father's. Now it's interesting that the Lord God does not send his angel at this point to rebuke him. And let me say this, that sometimes when you meet someone who is in a fit of despondency and despair, don't give them a little track on how to have a happy nervous breakdown. Uh, don't give them, uh, don't say cheer up. The best speech you can make will be to be silent. To look for something practical that you can do. The other day my doctor was talking with me about the fact that I was having a little difficulty in sleeping. He said, let's go over your schedule and see what you've been doing. So I began to enumerate the things. And he said, well, did you watch the Indianapolis 500? Well, I watched as much of it as I could stand, and I, I told him I watched some of it. He said, did you notice that the cars that went full blast would blow an engine and burn out? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about that, but it did seem like there was, they were having some trouble. And he said, well, that's a lesson to you. I want you to go fishing. And it was a good, good counsel. And so this very wonderful angel that the Lord sends to Elijah doesn't lecture to him, doesn't give him any books, but he goes and bakes some bread and takes a cruise of water and gives him something to eat. Now Mary Baker Patterson Eddy founded a whole cult on the mind over the body. But I want to tell you something. The body has a lot to do over the mind. And if you're real hungry or you're real tired, things get all distorted. Any wife or mother knows this in the raising of children, that when they get tired, they become cross, that people who come home hungry have to be fed promptly. And these things are important. Well, so this very human, tender, kind angel bakes some bread and takes a cruise of water and places it at the head of the sleeping, despondent prophet, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. In other words, he had spent himself physically in that long, tremendous flight from Jezebel's wrath. And he arose and did eat and drink. And then he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Now this is the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And here, I am sure that he went to be in the presence of God, but still... He's full of despair. He goes into a cave, and he lodges there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now some time had gone by, at least 40 days and nights and more. And finally the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now look at his speech. 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now he made the mistake of thinking that he was the only person in the whole world who stood for the Lord. And let me say also that some of the Lord's people made the mistake of not going to him and assuring him that there were others who could encourage him. And the voice of God said to him, go forth and stand in the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord passed by and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. I don't know if you've ever seen a tornado or a cyclone. But when they come sweeping across our plains country out in Texas, they can just explode a building in tremendous force and power. And here came a powerful cyclone, a powerful tornado that ripped huge boulders out of their sockets and sent them cascading down the sides of the mountain and the hill. It was awesome to see it all, this powerful wind. But the Lord was not in the wind. And I'm sure that the Lord was saying with this passionate prophet, and he is all passion. He is either sky high and furious at the king and raging at him because of his infidelity. He is taunting the prophet of Baal, or he is in the slew of despondency. And when James speaks about him, there's a marginal gloss in that fifth chapter of James when it refers to Elijah and speaks about prayer. Elijah prayed in his prayers, is what the gloss says. Do you really pray in your prayers, or do you just mumble prayers? Do you really pray? Is there a fervency and a power about it? But the Lord was not in the wind. I'm sure the Lord is teaching him that though his prayers had been answered, and the skies had been locked up, and no rain had come, that that judgment didn't turn the people back. And after this, an earthquake comes. An earthquake is like a revolution. It can sweep a land, and the country had been broken in twain. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. You know what's interesting about earthquakes? The seismologists who study earthquakes can tell you, because of fault lines in the crust of the Earth's surface, where an earthquake is likely to take place but they have not yet been able to predict precisely when it would occur. And so it behooves us to learn something from the seismologist, to study our weaknesses, to see where our fault lines lie, and to avoid those places where we are apt to encounter such an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The revolution didn't change them. The Lord was not in the fire, the great blast of fire that came, a bolt of lightning that scattered and burned all across the mountains like melting the rocks like molten lava. But where is the Lord? He comes in a still, small voice. The King James puts it very beautifully here. It's like a veil. It's really the silent voice of God that God speaks to us through the still, small voice of calm. 
that down inside our souls he is speaking. He is bringing a message when so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And again the voice said to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? You can't give in to this despair. Now you've had some rest. And we've reflected upon what's happened. And now I'm going to give you a commission of things to do. Go. I want you to go to Damascus and anoint a king. And I want you to anoint a successor to you whose name shall be Elisha. There's work to be done. You've had some rest. You've had some fellowship. You've had some inspiration. Now go back to work, Elijah. And so the voice comes to him and speaks to him. And the voice speaks to us today that we're not to give in to the enemy despair. The other night, someone called to me and said uh, that Robinson Crusoe was going to be on television to watch it. And I watched it, and I'm glad I did. Because Daniel Defoe, back in 1731, when he wrote this, puts a lot of great Christian truth into it. For he tells us how a text of scripture came like the voice of God to the hut and to the heart of Robinson Crusoe. He tells how this man who in great fever and sickness goes to open a chest and look for something that would be medicine, comes upon a Bible, and when he opens that Bible, his eyes alight upon a text of scripture that says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you so that you may glorify my name. And he called like a little child who is lost will call for his mother. He doesn't care what people think. He wants his mother and he calls. Like a person who's drowning calls for help. They don't care what anyone says. Call upon me. And so Robinson Crusoe calls upon the Lord in his day of trouble. And the Lord delivered him not only from his sickness physically, but the Lord delivered his soul from the sickness of sin, and he found Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he got upon his knees and he knelt, and he called upon Christ to save him. And then, after that, he finds that he has fellowship, a companion. After 11 years on that desert island, you remember how startled he was when he saw that footprint in the sand and he discovers Friday and he's terribly afraid and he runs away to hide. And the thing that he runs from is going to be turned into a blessing because what he thinks is going to be a cannibal savage is going to be his staunchest ally and his greatest friend. And that's the way God often does. There is a piece of verse that was written by a confederate soldier and after they found his crumpled dead body someone searching through his uniform pulled out a scrap of paper and read written in pencil I prayed for strength that I might achieve I was made weak that I might obey I prayed for health that I might do greater things 
I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I prayed for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I prayed for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given infirmity that I might feel my need of God. I prayed for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I had nothing that I asked for, but all that I had hoped for. My prayer was answered, and I am most blessed. You see the fellowship that comes through obedience to God. And so, in the midst of despair, what are we to do? We are to remember that there is a good and gracious God who keeps his promises and in whom we have reason to trust and believe. We can call upon him in the day of trouble and he will deliver us. And we are to glorify his name. When Paul went to that wicked pornographic capital of the world, Corinth, God told him that in this cesspool of iniquity, he said, I have many people, Paul, and I want you to bear a testimony for me here a testimony to Jesus Christ, and for 18 months he worked in Corinth. And we have two great letters that came, not only to the Corinthians, but to us to inspire us on. And so we're not to give in to the adversary, but we are to yield to Jesus Christ. And what happens when we do is that he brings deliverance, maybe not in the form that we had sought it, but he brings to us assurance that his purposes are wiser than what we want or think and that he is with us to do us good. In the third century, a man by the name of Cyprian wrote a letter which has worked its way down through history. He wrote a letter to a friend of his named Donatus, and I want to close with him. He said, this seems like a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadows of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. I would see bandits on the highways, pirates on the seas, and the amphitheater men are murdered to please applauding crowds. Under every roof there is misery and selfishness. It's really a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. And yet, in the midst of it all, I have found a quiet and a holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure this world can afford. They are despised and persecuted, but they do not care. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, call themselves Christians. And I have become one of them. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin? Have you accepted him as the Lord and Master of your life? If you have not, you could accept him right now. In your heart, in your own words, in your own way, you could give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand and grow from this day forward. All bow in prayer. And now, O blessed God, our Father, we pray that thou wilt use all of the circumstances of our lives to bring forth in us the fruits of holiness. 
Let us use disappointment as a material for patience. Help us to use success as material for thankfulness. Help us to use suspense as material for perseverance. Help us to use danger as material for courage. Help us to use even reproach as material for patience. Help us to use praise as material for humility. Help us to use pleasures as material for temperance. And help us to use pain as material for endurance. O Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before thee didst endure the cross, despising the shame and art now set down at the right hand of, throne, of the throne of God. Help us to consider thee who didst endure such contradiction of sinners against thyself, lest we be wearied and despair and faint in our minds. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.